The following podcast was recorded on Thursday, January 21st, featuring Jim Bianco of Bianco Research and Ben Breitholtz of Arbor Data Science. To hear the podcast in real time, you can sign up for a free trial at biancoresearch.com or arborresearch.com or by emailing Gus Handler directly at gus.handler at arborresearch.com. You can also call Arbor Research and Trading at 1-800-606-1872. Thanks for your time and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the latest edition of Talking Data. Our Talking Data series seeks to offer timely insights into the macro market themes along with macro data and its impact on the economy and markets. I am your host, Kristen Radish of Arbor Research and Trading. Our presenters today are Jim Bianco of Bianco Research and Ben Breitholtz of Arbor Data Science. Today, we will discuss Janet Yellen's testimony, what to expect with stimulus and COVID relief, and we will end with Robinhood Investors. Jim, we're gonna get started with you today. Janet Yellen testified earlier this week. What are the key takeaways and are we looking at a 50-year maturity? Well, let me start with that one right away. Um, she floated the idea that the uh, Treasury would consider 50-year maturity. This after less than a year ago, Steve Mnuchin, the now former Treasury Secretary, also floated the idea of a 50 or 100 year bond. And that goes after Jacob Liu four years ago, floated the idea of a 50 or 100 year bond. This is not new. This comes up over and over again, whether or not the Fed, or the, excuse me, the Treasury should increase their maturity. Now, just so everybody knows where I'm coming from, if you anoint me, ruler of the planet, I would argue, uh, Ben would be very afraid if you did, for one. But second of all, I would say that the, that the new yield curve of the treasury would be 30, 50, 100 in perpetuals. I am a big, big fan of extending way out there right now. But <clears throat> the dealer community and the treasury borrowing auction committee, which is um, the TBAC, which is their voice within the treasury to talk about making these kind of changes is dead set against any kind of long-term maturities. This is what kills it every single time. And the reason the dealer community is dead set against it is the dealer community is afraid that if the, if the demand for a century bond, a hundred year bond or 50 year bond is not there, they're stuck with these bonds. They're stuck making markets in unprofitable securities. So they're, they're not a big fan of it. The Treasury Department is not ready to abandon the dealer community and go to like a platform that a market access or web or trade web would offer. And they're not ready to push back on the dealer community and say, we hear you, you don't like it too bad, we're gonna do it anyway. So I suspect this is gonna be more the same. A lot of blather, they should do it, but at the end of the day, if the dealer community continues with its insistence that they don't, it won't really happen. Mnuchin had to compromise to save face with a 20-year bond. I don't know if Yellen's gonna come up with an 18-year bond or a 25-year bond or something like that, but it, or maybe a seven-year or something in the middle or a four-year, bring back that one. But uh, it's gonna be very, very difficult for them to bring it back. Although I do think it would be nice if they did. Yeah, I th you know, a lot of this, there's a lot that goes into uh, this decision. I know uh, 
Jim, you're not going to agree with much of what I'm about to say here right now, but um, you know, I thought Joe Weisenthal had some good comments that are definitely more MMT focused uh, with the idea that we can't really necessarily treat the government, the U.S. government, like a household that we have to issue, always issue bonds necessarily to, to pay for infrastructure or whatever we're spending on and so on. You know, in the end, all we need is a House or Senate vote to do so. So the concept of adding more duration um, and further out the curve could end up being kind of counter to the QE and the purchases and the shortening of duration that QE is meant to do, um, they could kind of fight, you know, be a battle um, um, in that regard. Also, I, you know, there's a question whether or not the demand will be there. Yes, pension funds, some insurance companies obviously might, you know, it, it might fit. And maybe that's a, something that the government should do to try to fulfill that demand, fulfill that service, that need. But even the 20-year uh, is being kind of a question mark. I think the 20-year right now is cheapening on the curve. That's the new point. They've issued 20 years. The government's buying them uh, to a certain extent, but now dampened. I think they own uh, typically out of the percent outstanding. They own somewhere around you know 60, 62 percent of them. That's diminishing. Um, that's allowing that point on the curve to cheapen relative to tens and thirties. So I'm curious to see how that ultimately kind of goes. That being the orphaned area of the curve. So yeah, a lot of question marks. Um, it sounds great, you can lock in low interest rates, but I think there's kind of a sea change happening here with how uh, all of us and the government's going to view treasury debt for the most part. Uh, I don't think it's gonna happen overnight, um, but uh, I think treating it like a household might become somewhat of a thing of the past at some point. That's an interesting comment. Yeah, I can understand, you know, Weisenthal, your, your, your comments are where you're coming along with that. I'll just conclude this section with one quick comment. Um, if you are thinking about the United States as an asset and you're trying to duration match it, what's its duration of the United States? Well, we hope it's forever. And if it's not forever, nothing else matters. And so we might as well extend out the maturities as long as we can to kind of liability match the, uh, the asset as well too. Because right now we've got this very long tail asset, a 250 year old country, that we keep financing with overnight money, and so that there is <clears throat> there is that kind of a, uh, of a of a mismatch that we've been running for a, a long time as well too. But I understand the other arguments as well. We'll just have to see, you know, what it is that the Treasury wants. And I'll just conclude with a, just emphasizing something I said before. Right now, mm -hmm. it seems like which I very don't like is the Treasury proposes the dealers say no. And it's like the treasury says, well, okay, I'm sorry I brought it up, we won't do it. Um, who's in charge here, Janet? Are you in charge here or are the dealers in charge here? And so that's kind of the bigger issue they gotta decide. Ben, we're gonna move um, over to you for the, to start off our next topic. Should we expect, uh, what, sh what should we expect with continued stimulus and COVID relief? So yeah, I'm not necessarily a soothsayer in that that department, but you know, with with Yellen claiming that we need to essentially go big, um, you know, I think that obviously the the concept of this two trillion dollar stimulus package has some has some legs, um, and is something that is of course you know risk on for uh, for markets in general, and is likely warranted. We still have 3.4 million people that are permanent job losers. Uh, and as Jim has also been rightly talking about, you know, we have eight, eight nine uh, million that are still you know, unemployed in terms of filling that gap from where we were pre-pandemic. Uh, pre so I think that you know, the, the, the opportunity here, uh, given the blue wave um, and the, the ability to have the votes, I mean, the stimulus will be coming. Um, like Jim's always said, the big question mark is, um, 
well, two things. One, you know, what is that ultimately going to do with spending and with inflation on the back end? That's a huge consideration. Um, and then two, uh, you know, with savings rates are already so high and the vaccine on the horizon or really, you know, being put into place now, um, is there the possibility that um, that could be, you know, too much? Um, uh, and maybe, maybe even two at some point if things correct very quickly on the COVID front, maybe even some of the legislators get a little bit less likely or willing to do that. Um, you know, that's kind of the question. But I think there's a high probability we get a bigger package, um, especially when you have Yellen um, and, uh, you know, most obviously Congress and the Senate controlled by Democrats willing to, to make that leap. I think that as far as the deal goes, um, where the, you might find the sticking point is, <clears throat> all right, should we mail checks to people? Everybody's going to say yes. Should we extend unemployment? Everybody's going to say yes. Extend eviction moratoriums? bail out the states. Yes, 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 yes. Then when you get down to the, okay, here's a bunch of corporate welfare to call it what it is, you know, a bunch of handouts to individual companies um, or individual industries, then I think you're going to start to see some pushback within the Democratic Party. And that's where the fighting is going to come. Uh, and, and that's where it's going to be kind of interesting to see if enough of that comes into the bill to poison it and that's where it might come down. Now, on the Republican side, I think the Republicans are going to be dead set against uh, the, the, you know, the aid to states. Uh, that they're going to see that as a bailout of bad behavior of states. And since Ben and I are both in the state of Illinois, we know nothing whatsoever about bad behavior <laughs> of states at all. And that's going to be a big pushback um, as well, too. But in the end, I do think that there's going to be a sizable bill. Um, those are just kind of the uh, the contours that they're going to have to work out. And if nothing else, just to uh, emphasize something that Ben was saying, if getting these contours worked out pushes your bill out to April or May, and then you wind up having, say, uh, tens of millions of people vaccinated by that point, maybe the infection count has been uh, peaked and it's starting back down, the economy's picking back up, the cold feet could then unfold a lot more later on because, man, look at this economy is getting better. Do we really need to do this? And does it create an inflation problem or some other issue down the road? But if you're pushing it out the door in February, I don't think that's going to be as big an issue. So we'll have to see how this one unfolds. And next, let's end today by talking about those Robinhood investors that uh, we've spoken a lot in the past about them. When they do receive the stimulus money, where do you think they're going to put that? Where will they be investing? Ben, do you want to start us? Oh, Jim? Yeah, I'll start with that one. <clears throat> they're going to buy the Goldman Sachs non-profitable stock market. It's <laughs> what they're going to buy. Um, <clears throat> I think, let me just say one quick thing about the Robinhood investors. Um, uh, by the way, that Goldman Sachs tech index, uh, I tweeted it out the other day, and it's kind of, it was just a stock index that I, I, I came across that I thought was interesting, and it's gone viral uh, in the last couple of days. But uh, I will say what has happened, and I think people need to understand this, is that there's been somewhat of a sea change since the spring. Prior to the spring for 10 years, we all understand investors were shying away from the vehicles of active managers no longer interested in the active managed open-ended mutual fund. They preferred ETFs tied to indices. They still do. But what we're starting to see since the spring is now they're starting to take it upon themselves in order to start investing their own money. 
the, I think the two big drivers of that are one, the cut to zero commissions and fractional shares that we had in late 19 and early 2020, that that has opened it up or has perceived to open it up for investors. I know a lot of Wall Streeters will say, well, it's not free. They sell the uh, order to some big firm like Citadel and then they get them, they get filled at the offer at a bad price. No, the public doesn't care about that. They just see no commission. And that's uh, as far as they do. And then fractional shares. Well, I, I really can't pay 1700 bucks to buy Tesla, but now you can buy a tenth of it for $170. Uh, and so they're, they're, that's pushing them in there. In addition, the stimulus checks, I think have really helped that along. Yes, they got the original CARES Act money and they've gotten some other money and the economy was so dicey. Well, I'm not gonna go out and buy a new car with this money. I'm not gonna remodel my kitchen yet, but I'll save it in a form of savings is a brokerage account. And they've been chasing you know, the stocks that they like in brokerage accounts. Now, I suspect we'll continue to see that happen as we move forward from here, especially if we get more stimulus quicker I think it goes towards investments if we and then eventually when we start getting towards the the talk of herd immunity reopening the economy when Ben and I can go to a Wrigley Field for a Cubs game again then they'll say okay things are getting better now maybe I could take that money and actually buy that new car or remodel my kitchen or anything like that Ben what's your thoughts I think the fractional thing, you know, share thing was was big. I mean, you were you talked about that immediately as it happened, um, and I think that allowed a lot of these companies to exist. I mean, you we look and you watch commercials now on whatever Hulu or Netflix, and you see new companies that are there to compete with Robinhood. So this is this is gone beyond fad status uh, at this point, and I think the the retail community, like you said, is is focused so much now not on just buying ETFs, but buying on specific individual equities, and they like these high-flying momentum stocks that are also attached to the new economy. So part of this is yes, you know, it's exuberance and and wild speculation, but it's also this transfer uh, due to the pandemic from kind of the old economy to the new economy, technology, be it plug, Teslas, Roku, whatever it may be. Companies that likely be here for you know for some time, not all of them, but you know for for some time. And what I've noticed is that we can track a lot of this small trader retailness via their search activity, which is really interesting. And you saw this just explosion in desire to learn about day trading, swing trading, and so on. And what we've also seen is an ability to essentially time the market to a certain extent based on their a desire to either be long or short. Are they bullish or bearish? Are they buying bull spreads? Are they looking at iron butterflies, you know, for, for vol um, you know, like consolidation and so on? And if you, you kind of look at all these different topics that they're searching on, what's interesting, quit these spreads, you know, what the things that they're optimistic on and then, and then pessimistic and, you know, look at the difference. And really, you can see this exuberance has been really firm since early May and is not backed off yet. I think until I, we see that kind of, um, you know, fervent search activity for being long, swing trading, day trading, call options, and so on, um, you know, get replaced by fears of market corrections, recession uh, talk again, or just being short in general, this, you know, probably has some time to run. And I think it's a great indicator and it creates a new world for all of us. When we maybe laughed at this, um, you know, Jim, we used to have these discussions months ago and a lot of us, you know, even within the organization be like, what are you talking about? This re you know, retail money is really swinging the market one way or the other. And I think that there's some truth to that to a certain extent. 
And so now there's a whole set of indicators for us to, to burrow into, which is, I think, a lot of fun. I agree. It is a lot of fun. I'll, I'll, I'll leave this with one other thought. There's a, <clears throat> a very famous tech investor, Roger McNamee of Elevation Partners. He was Bono's partner in uh, investing. And Roger's kind of, you know, one of these guys that kind of speaks without a filter, so it makes him very interesting. And whenever people ask him, Roger, what do you like? What should people be buying? He will point out that 90% of the investments that he's ever invested in have gone to zero. But if in the world of tech unicorns, I can whiff on nine or 10 of my companies and they can go to zero. But boy, if that 10th is a unicorn, I'm really mm -hmm. rich. And mm -hmm. so that's the way that uh, that mentality where people buying all these companies are, they don't care if 80% of them go to zero because it only takes one unicorn. And there's been so many examples of unicorns, you know, whether it's Snap or or, or, or Facebook or whatever you want to take you as your example, that they're willing to continue to push for that one, you know, hundred bagger that's going to make up for not only every loss that I've had, but leave me much, much better off in the long run. That mentality is going to be around for a while. It's going to take a time for that to break um, anytime soon. Well, thank you, Jim and Ben, for your thoughts today. We really appreciate it. Also, thank you to our audience for joining us. As a reminder, Arbor Research and Trading is an institutional research and brokerage firm. Our two most prominent research offerings are Bianco Research and Arbor Data Science. For further information, please contact Gus Handler at gus.handler at arborresearch.com.